In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Our guest this week on Money Tales is Rohit Bargava. Rohit prides himself on being a non-obvious thinker. Dismayed by traditional publishing practices, Rohit decided with his wife to launch Idea Press, an alternative to the big book publishers. He was motivated by an entrepreneurial spirit and the desire to have greater control. Rohit tells us that he was inspired by Beyonce. If she could create her own label, he figured he could do the same in publishing. Rohit is a leading authority on marketing, trends, and innovation. In addition to IdeaPress, he is the founder of The Non-Obvious Company. Rohit is an entertaining and an original keynote speaker on marketing disruption and innovation. He is also the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of five books on topics as wide-ranging as the future of business, building a human brand with personality, and why leaders always eat left-handed. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Rohit hits on in this conversation. First, what it was like to grow up with immigrant parents and their mentality about not wasting food, clipping coupons, and generally saving money. Rohit also shares how certain cultural rules his family subscribed to about who pays for meals and other things based on their relative age made life a little bit easier because everyone knew what was expected. Second, Rohit describes in detail how money works for authors in traditional publishing companies. And third, how he and his wife have purposely encouraged their sons to have entrepreneurial mindsets. If you like this episode, be sure to share it with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, on to our conversation with Rohit Bargava. Hello, Money Tales listeners. This is Cami, and I'm here with my co-host, Sandy. Hello, Cami. Hi, Sandy. I'm influenced by our guest today with my opening question to you. He's someone who helps leaders be more open-minded, see what others miss, and learn to anticipate the future. I'd like to ask you, Sandy, what role, if any, do future predictions have in the long-term wealth planning process? I don't ever think about them as predictions because when we're building long-term wealth plans for our clients, we are building models that look out over, in many cases, the next several decades. In some cases, it might be beyond into the lifetime of the rising generation of a client's family. So there's a lot of modeling that goes into it. And we do need to have some ideas of what the future might look like, what rates of returns might be, what inflation might be like, but also what is the client or the family doing in terms of their use of money? How are they bringing money in? Are they relying on assets that they've already accumulated in their lifetime? And then we also have to think about taxes. What's happening with the tax regime? That's a really hard one to predict. 
that's sort of the beauty of the modeling. We can make a lot of different assumptions and we can model different scenarios to help clients understand a range of events and make decisions today that will one way or another help influence their future. And the beauty is that as time goes on, we can continue to update these models. It's not a one and done planning situation. We can always use the models to provide context for really good decision-making today about all the things in the future that will ultimately unfold and give us more information. Thanks, Andy. That's great. I'd like to find out if our guests could help us understand tax change, maybe not predictions, but anticipations. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Rohit Bargava. It is really great to have you on Money Tales. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. And I can definitely tell you, I will not be able to tell you anything about taxes. So let's get that out of the way right away. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Would you please introduce yourself and share with us and our listeners two to three pivotal moments that really impacted who you are today? I run a book publishing company right now called Idea Press. For the last 12 years, I've been a published author. I've written now eight books so far, working on my ninth, which will come out next year. I grew up in the world of writing, marketing, and advertising. So I spent a long time working in marketing agencies. And my beginning was really in the advertising industry through probably my first pivotal life change, which was that after I graduated college, I decided to move to Australia without knowing anyone there and just picking up and going. My story there was go live in a dorm for three weeks because that was the maximum I could do before I would get kicked out. And that was my clock to get a job so that I could actually afford to live somewhere three weeks. You had to go off and do something, right? For me, that was my thing. It was in my early 20s, obviously not attached to too much. That's the time in your life when I think you should go off and do that thing, whatever that thing happens to be. And so for me, it was moving somewhere else where I could be in a foreign environment and learn something about myself without having to learn a new language. Although some would argue Australian is kind of its own language. So I did have to relearn some words. That was a big life moment for me. The second one was probably right around the time when I decided to move back to the US. I met my wife around that time and then I became a dad. And I was still at that point employed by someone else. And I spent the first almost 10 years of my new life being employed, a corporate employee. The next big shift for me was I decided to become an entrepreneur. So I left that all behind, started our own business with my wife and started teaching our kids about entrepreneurship. And now I put myself squarely in that category of being an entrepreneur. That was my next big pivot. The last one, which I know we'll talk about, so I won't spend too much time on it, is my oldest son now is just graduated and is about to go to college. I'm a couple of years away from turning 50, and I know that that's probably going to be a big moment for me too. I'll be in my 50s, my kids will be in college, and then what? I'm thinking about that now, even though I'm just beginning that part. We often learn a lot about money in our formative years. How was money handled in your home when you were growing up? I was a first-generation immigrant in the sense that my parents grew up in India. I was actually born in India. When we moved to the US, I was less than a year old. And the reason we moved is because my dad got a job offer with the World Bank, and he's an economist. So obviously, that's going to play into what I learned about money because he's always been really good at money. To the point where one of our family stories is that there was an article in the school newspaper at the University of Illinois where he did his PhD about him because he did his entire PhD, and this is back in the early 70s, no internet. He did his entire PhD without buying a single book. 
He just went to the library, did the research there to save money. I mean, it was specifically about money. One of the big stories that my parents would tell me is he had received a scholarship. They went to the University of Illinois. This was before I was born. He finished his education. They really thought, both my parents, that this would be the last time they would leave India. While he was doing his schooling, they would use whatever stipend he had to pay for their expenses. And then my mom was working as a typist. They took whatever money she had and they saved it because they were going to do one big trip across Europe and everywhere else on their way back to India, because that would be the only time they would get to travel in their lives. So they thought they saved the money. They had that epic trip. They moved back to India. And then I was born. And shortly after that, my dad got this job offer at the World Bank. And that for them started a lifelong international journey. Since then, they've been to probably 60 different countries. My dad's worked in all these different regions. They've lived in the Philippines for five years. They have had an international life, even though ironically at that point, they thought they'd never have money to travel again. And so they just did that big trip back then. What conversations were you having about money at home? The conversations I remember having about money when I was younger was all about the value of money. From talking to a lot of friends who grew up the way I did, it's really an immigrant's mentality, this idea that you don't waste money. If you buy food, you eat all of the food you buy. My mom was clipping the coupons out of the book and stocking up in the pantry and all of that stuff. You really do grow up with this mentality that money should be saved. It should be held onto. And I think that that was a big part of how we would grow up learning about money. At the same time, I don't know that it was ever totally transparent. I don't recall my dad ever sitting me down and saying, here's how much money I make every year in that directive way. Definitely in the Indian culture, you don't ask others about money. No one would ask someone else, how much money do you make? This whole salary transparency thing that's going on right now would never have flown culturally in the way that we talked about or learned about money outside of the family. Do you recall when you were a kid, if you had curiosity, if you wish you could ask those questions? I don't remember feeling like there was a barrier for me that I couldn't ask about it. I do remember that some of the conversations we would have about money or what we would see about money would be these very public things that have now been caricatured of two uncles fighting over the check, like who gets to pay. We would experience that. No, no, I'm going to pay. No, I'm going to pay. And then somebody would like sneakily give the credit card to the waiter to outfox the other person so that they would get to pay first. That was one thing. And the other thing that I would learn as an older brother is when you take your little brother out, you're the one who pays. It's not a question. That's how it's done. Like when I go out with my older cousins or my older brothers, they would pay. And when I would go out with my younger brother, I would pay. Now we're older, so it's not quite so strict, but that was just culturally how it worked. I grew up in something similar and there's a comfort in that because you knew you had a job to take care of the younger folks, but you were taken care of by the older ones. At what time in your life do you feel money started having meaning to you? Probably like most people, when I left college, my parents didn't have money when they came to America, but I was very lucky that my dad made really good choices when he was here. He built wealth. By the time my brother and I went to college, we had this combination of enough family wealth that we could afford to go to college but also some really savvy choices by my dad. So for example, one of the choices he made was at the time, there was a benefit for World Bank employees that was designed to incentivize employees to have their children go to school internationally because that would create more well-rounded citizens. That was the philosophy. So if your kid went to college in a country other than where you lived, they would pay 80% of tuition. And that was a big factor, I think, in why my dad took the gig in the Philippines, because he had two kids in college in America. 
And when he went to the Philippines, all of a sudden the World Bank was picking up 80% of the tab for tuition because of this beautiful benefit that I think no longer exists now. But back then they had this benefit. And so I did my master's degree also almost for free because I was still in the window. They only pay up until age 25. So I did my master's relatively early because I had somebody else paying for it. Because of that, both my brother and I graduated without any college debt. What that meant was when we first started working, we didn't have debt, but we also didn't have money coming in from our debt. And once we were adults, we were on our own. To answer your question, the first time that I really started thinking about money was when I was off on my own. That time when I was in Australia for three weeks to try and find the job, the reason I had enough money to go was not because I took it from my dad, but because I'd been waiting tables for nine months before that in DC to earn money to go. And so I knew exactly how much money I had to the point where I remember those three weeks, the way that I ate was that I would buy a loaf of bread and peanut butter, and I'd keep that in my little dorm locker, and that would be my breakfast and lunch. And then I'd go to all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet for dinner for seven bucks. And that was what I did for that whole time so that my daily food budget was less than 10 bucks. This is in Australia? Yeah, this is in Australia. No Vegemite? No, I couldn't get into the Vegemite, unfortunately. But to date myself, the way that cell phone plans used to work then in Australia was you didn't pay to receive a call. You only paid to make a call. And so I would intentionally call all the recruiters and everyone at lunchtime when I knew they were out so that I'd have to leave them a message. So they would have to call me back. And then I would take the call and I wouldn't have to pay for the phone minutes. It was like all these little hacks to try and save a little bit of money. At the time, everyone did that. It wasn't something only I figured out. It was like commonplace. So did you ultimately find a job within that three-week period? I did. I found a job doing HTML coding, which I had literally taught myself how to do off of a book that was titled Teach Yourself HTML in a Week. It turned out that was something that people needed. And so I got a four-week gig doing HTML coding. And I remember after the second week, I realized the reason they needed to bring in freelancers was because the project management was terrible. So after the second week, I started trying to help out answering questions and stuff. After the third week, the client figured out that I knew the answers and it asked me directly. And after the fourth week, they hired me as a project manager, basically. We called it producer, which was a cool title, but it was basically project managing websites getting developed inside of an ad agency. That was my start. That was the first job. And were you thinking about money at that moment? I was thinking about money. At that point, when I first got that job, I was like, okay, I have enough money to pay for rent, but I got a furnished apartment because I had no furniture. In Australia at that time, when you move into an unfurnished apartment, that apartment also doesn't include a fridge or laundry. You have to buy those items yourself. And when you move, you take that stuff with you. Your expense to get an unfurnished place and then furnish it all of a sudden went way higher. There's a deterrent to move. Exactly. So I got a furnished place for six months, but my motivation was I need enough money to get my own place because a furnished place obviously is more expensive. But I did have a buddy in the dorm who was a Scottish champion mountain bike rider. And we kind of made a trade. And I said, look, you can stay at my apartment because he also had the three-week limit at the dorm. So you can hang out at my apartment and live there. And then we'll go mountain biking together because I already have this place. I'm already paying for it. I have a job and I have the space. So he just crashed on the floor and we went mountain biking. And that was my quote unquote roommate for a while. How long did you stay in Australia? I was there for a total of five years. What brought you back? I think there are some times in your life where you just feel like it's time. And I was feeling that. I mean, I was 28 at the time and I had an amazing time there, but it just felt like the time was right. I was far away from my family and I was really feeling the distance. Was there a financial impact to you as you were moving back to the United States? Yes and no. 
I was quite lucky because I was working in a industry that was experiencing the equivalent of a dot-com boom. So I was getting paid increasingly well. I had a corporate card with literally no one checking what I was spending money on. So I developed some bad habits there in terms of ordering expensive stuff and somebody else would pay for it, which I had to unlearn when I came back here. But financially, I was actually okay because what ended up happening was at that point, my parents had moved back from the Philippines. So short term, I said, well, let me come back to DC where I grew up in this area. And I'll just live with them for a little bit of time until I find a job because I was now looking for a new job. Ironically, that time frame when I was living at home unemployed was when I met my wife. So I was quite a catch <laughs> at that moment. <laughs> Would you tell us more about your story with your wife? You mentioned that when you got married, you had your first son fairly soon. You also said you started a business together. Tell us the story about that. We actually started two businesses. The first one was really based on my increasing profile as a professional speaker. Because what I started to realize was the more opportunities I had to go off and speak, do a paid keynote somewhere, the more easily I could probably start a business for myself around that. Because I started to really run into some trouble when I was fully employed by someone else, when I had these speaking gigs, because the arrangement I made with them is, okay, if I get a speaking gig, I take the day off. It just feels more ethical because I'm getting paid by somebody else to do my own thing. So I take a day off, do it on my side. I got their permission. Everything was good. The problem was speaking gigs are booked months in advance, if not a year in advance. So I would book something in February for November and everybody would be like, oh, that's great. But then November rolls around and all of a sudden in my full-time job, we have like a big client pitch or we have something going on. And it's one thing if you're going on vacation, people are like, okay, you're gone for a whole week. But for me to say two days before the pitch, oh, I have the speaking gig, I'll be gone that day. They'll be like, what do you mean you're gone? Like, we need you right now. Now I'm stuck because I said yes to something eight months ago that I now can't say no to. But the perception inside of the company I'm working with, which is fair, is, hey, you're prioritizing your own stuff over what we need from you. And you're a full-time employee, so what's going on? And eventually, that was just too much of a conflict to manage. So one of the businesses you started with your wife is as a professional speaker. So that business was the non-obvious company. And that was me speaking, but also doing consulting and stuff like that. That wasn't really with my wife. That was just me as a solo guy. Part of that was me writing books and being dissatisfied with traditional publishing and the big publishing houses and thinking like an entrepreneur and saying, I could do this myself better. What if I started a publishing company? That's where she and I started collaborating. We would manage different aspects of this company. And that's what we actually have now and what we work on together, Idea Press, which is our publishing company. Say more about why you thought you could do publishing better. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the best way I can explain it is the way traditional publishing works is it's an acquisition-based model. So they pay an author in advance. And essentially what that means is we've prepaid you for this book and now you are our employee. You're writing this book for us. We make all the decisions. We decide when it goes out. We decide what the cover is going to be. I mean, obviously we want you to be happy, but it's all our call. If there's a bigger book that we want to spend more time on, that's what we'll do. If we want to minimize your book or delay it by three months because it doesn't fit our schedule, that's what we'll do. So for anybody who is entrepreneurially minded, to take a traditional publishing deal now puts you back into being an employee, basically. And it's all for the trade-off of what's essentially a loan, because people think, oh, you got a $300,000 advance. That's amazing. But the reason it's called an advance is because it's a loan. I mean, you're paying it back based on the royalties that your book makes. 
the good thing is advances are not refundable, which means if your book doesn't sell enough to recoup the advance, that's the risk that the publisher takes. So you're good. But if your book does do successfully and you make more than that, you've earned out your advance and now you're making one or $2 per book and your publisher is making way more than that. So it's way more profitable for them. So part of it was the financial model. Part of it was the control. And the bigger part was just being an entrepreneur. I wanted control. And honestly, I got inspired by Beyonce. I'm like, if Beyonce can create her own label and say, screw you to everybody else, why can't I try and do the same thing in publishing? I wanted to be Beyonce. So tell us about how that impacted your family and how you guys were thinking about money for yourselves, because starting your own endeavor and doing things differently than the prescribed model entails a lot of risk. It was risky, but I think we had a little bit of a soft landing because like I said, I was already getting speaking gigs and I knew what I was making getting the speaking gigs. The runway I gave myself is I said, in the first year of our business, my financial goal is I want to replace what my full-time salary was. That's it. And if I can replace my full-time salary, then I'm good. And at that point, I was already making my full-time salary plus my speaking gigs on the side. Without having to ask anybody about the dates for the speaking gigs, my gigs went up. And then I landed a consulting client, my first consulting client on a retainer. And that was a very specific thing in my mind because I was like, our mortgage at that point, based on whatever the stuff was, was like $4,000 a month. So I'm like, okay, I need a client that will pay me a retainer of like four or $5,000 a month. And that'll basically be an equal side between that client and my mortgage. And if I have that, then I feel good about everything else because somebody's paying specifically for the mortgage. And that's what I got. I got a six month gig with a client. They pay me $5,000 a month as a retainer. And I'm like, okay, I'm good. Broke things down to make sure you could comfortably pay your bills. How did you start becoming a speaker? For me, my path was I started to get invited to panels. And my goal on the panel was to say something different from everyone else. We've all been in those situations where you listen to a panel and everybody agrees with everybody. I didn't want to show up as the asshole being contrarian for no reason. But I really put pressure on myself to be distinctive, to say something useful, to actually not just sit there and agree with everybody else or restate what they already said. And as a result of that, I started to get a reputation as the best person on the panel, which then got me invitations to moderate panels, which then got me invitations to be part of a keynote panel, which then got me an invitation to do a solo talk. And then people started saying, what's your fee? To which my answer was, I don't know, which, how much do you have? <laughs> right? And they said, well, our speaker stipend is 2,500 bucks. How does that sound? And I'm like, that sounds awesome because it's more than nothing, which is what I was getting before. That's how I got started. And then I figured out that in speaking, the beautiful thing is you don't have to create the market for a certain price. Example I often use is like, if I told you that I had the world's most awesome beer, but it costs $80 a bottle. Not only do I have to convince you my beer is awesome, I have to convince you that any beer is worth paying 80 bucks a bottle, which is hard because now I'm trying to create the market demand for something at a price point that doesn't exist. Whereas in speaking, Bill Clinton gets paid 450 grand for a one-hour talk. So that already exists. I'm definitely nowhere near that, but I don't have to create the idea that anyone's one-hour talk is worth 450 grand. That already exists. All I have to do is convince somebody that I'm worth whatever money I want to charge because the market's already there. Now it's just a question of, is my video good enough? Is my content good enough? Am I compelling enough to exist at that level that I want to be charging? And that market I love because now it's just a competitive market. And as long as I'm good enough to belong at whatever rate I say I am, that's good. 
great that you've been able to build your businesses and work along with your wife to do that. As you've grown in your life, a young person to a rising adult to a family member who's about to turn 50 with a child going off to college, tell us about the money conversations you and your wife are having within your own family and with your children. We made a choice relatively early on to try and teach our kids to be entrepreneurial. And what that's meant to us is we want them to see opportunities to make money that are not strictly go and work at Chipotle and get paid an hourly wage. There's nothing wrong with doing that. And if you want to do that, and if that's how you want to make the money, then great. But that's not the only way to do it. The more we have done that, and we've done a couple of programs that have been for families where literally our kids went out on the street on New Year's and just sold New Year's stuff in Florida. And it was a quote unquote vacation, but it was also an entrepreneurial training thing for kids. It was all a competition and they were raising money for charity. And it was this fantastic thing because they realized this really important experience that I think any entrepreneur should have of trying to sell something to someone who basically ignores you or walks right by you. They learned some pretty interesting lessons. For example, these groups were made up of kids aged between 8 and 14. Pretty quickly, they realized that the kids who were better at selling were the cuter eight-year-old kids because it's hard to say no to a cute eight-year-old kid. It's easier to say no to a 14-year-old teenager. So those kids became the salespeople. And they also experienced the irrationality of sales. For example, they were selling one of those little streamer things. And their deal, no joke, was one for $2 or two for five. (laughs) And people would buy two for five. Nobody would think about it. But that was the deal. That was literally the sign they had, one for $2 or two for five. And people were like, here you go, here's five bucks. And they're like, what the heck? But then you learned something from that. Those types of experiences, I think, have been really formative for our kids because now they'll go to halftime at a soccer game and sell the little cowbell things. My older one got really into sneakers and sneaker culture is crazy. Some of these sneakers, when you buy it, when it just drops and then you put it on StockX or something like that, you could flip them. You buy it for 200 bucks and you flip it and get 300. That's a lot of money for basically reselling a pair of sneakers versus making $15 an hour at Chipotle. Now you got to work however many hours that is to make $100. And here you are getting a pair of sneakers, flipping it, making the same hundred bucks. Now they realize that there are many ways to make money. Are you talking a lot about what to do with the money that they're making? Sometimes. I mean, right now it's trying to teach them the value of saving. And I see personality differences. My younger one saves. My older one's like, okay, I'm going to buy this thing or buy that thing. To some degree, it's experimentation that he's like, okay, let me try this. Let me try that. He's more about trying to do that. And that's not something that I've taught one of them or the other. That's just their personality manifesting itself in terms of how they deal with the money that they have. My brother and I had the same thing too. My allowance would come in and be gone and I'd borrow money from him if I needed to buy like a Lego set or something like that. Borrow money from him to take him out to lunch. (laughs) Yeah. That later on. As your spender is about to go off to college, what sort of money conversations are you guys having together? I know what conversations I need to have with him and I know what landmines there are out there. I mean, the first day that he gets onto orientation. I know there's going to be eight different credit card companies ready to give him a new credit card in exchange for a free t-shirt. Part of it is just some basics. 
that I'm trying to teach him. For example, never carry credit card debt because the percentage, you're going to get a 20% charge versus if you took a loan from somewhere else, you'd get 3% or maybe 5% or whatever it is. So you got to pay the bills. You got to be responsible about that. But honestly, he's going to be on his own for the first time having to deal with that, having to pay those bills, having his own credit card. We need to have more conversations around that. I'm trying to figure out what is the right way to give him some money so he has food, but not so much that he can get anything he wants. I don't want him to feel like dad's got plenty of money so I can just buy whatever I want. I want him to have a responsible relationship with how he spends money. And so far, it's been pretty good. Our kids don't have expensive tastes. They don't randomly buy whatever they want. They understand the value of money, I think, in terms of how it's spent. And the way I can test that is when I see something that they are interested in. I mean, every kid's interested in stuff, right? They see something in a store, they see something somewhere else. The way I gauge whether they have a responsible reaction to something is when they present something to me, especially when they were younger, and they're like, oh, I want this or I want that. I would ask them, does that seem like a good price for that? And let them figure out that, you know, 80 bucks for a pair of shoes, if you're not going to resell it, that's too much. You're going to grow too fast for them. That's not a good price for that. I'm so glad you raised that. That's such an important question to be asking kids. I've got younger kids. If you ask them versus tell them, you engage them. It is really surprising when I hear my daughter say, that's too much money. When I ask, it's a really powerful conversation. That is key, but also their friend circle. My older son, for example, he went off to Beach Week, which is a big thing that graduating seniors do where they go off to the beach for a week with all their friends and no parents around. So we all panic about it, but it's like the awesomest thing in their lives for them. One of the things that he had to work out with his friends was where do we stay because different friends can afford different types of places. At this point, a lot of parents are just like, okay, it's your senior week, wherever the place is like, we'll help you with the, you don't have to pay for that yourself, or you pay for some of it and we'll pay for the rest. Some families in his friend group, they can't afford that. What I loved was that they specifically looked at places that everyone could afford. And they said, we're not going to book a place that everybody can't afford. We're going to find a place that is within everyone's price range. And that's where we're going to stay, even if it's not that nice of a place, because we want everybody to be able to come. I didn't tell him to do that. And it wasn't just him. It's his whole group that made the decision together, which is what I love. Because especially when you're younger, some of your financial habits are influenced by who you're around. What's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? I do think that college conversation is going to be the big one to have with my son. But I think it's going to be an ongoing one because I don't know that I'm going to get it exactly right. That is definitely the next big money conversation that I need to have. I'm feeling a little overwhelmed by how exactly I'm going to do that as a dad. But I'll dig into, I'll read some books, I'll do whatever I do whenever I feel overwhelmed and not knowledgeable enough, which is I'll go off and talk to people and learn everything I can learn. You're a great model. I think you do know what to talk about already. Everything you've shared today about your experience, sharing that with your son will certainly help and setting expectations for him will also help because if young adults know what the expectations are, they're able to make really good decisions. And when they don't make good decisions, there's learning there. So having open conversations with you, I'm sure will be extremely helpful to both of you. I've learned a lot from my dad. I'm trying to channel that back as well. Rohit, thank you so much for sharing your non-obvious thinking, for telling us stories of being an entrepreneur and building these businesses together with your wife. It's been a pleasure to have you on Money Tales. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation as well. 
Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.